Hey, this is Shannon from Slapdash, and this episode is sponsored by 606 Iron. Located in the Big M Plaza in Whitley City, Kentucky, 606 Iron has cardio equipment, free weights, numerous weight training machines, weekly kettlebell classes, and tanning beds. Stop by 606 Iron for membership information or call 606-310-4918. History, art, science, and everything else. They slap down a new topic and dash off to next. It's a great big world with so much to know. Like cryptids, time travel, and the history of Poe. If you want to be a smarty, better learn something fast. With Shannon and Jason on Slapdash Podcast. On today's episode, we're discussing artificial intelligence, also called AI. I'm Shannon Deaton, and across the table is humanity's last hope against our machine overlords. <laughs> Jason Creekmore, how are you, sir? Well, uh, humanity is in trouble if I'm their last hope, <laughs> but I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, interesting topic here today. Have you had very many machines come to life and attempt to take over your household? Uh, my toaster looks at me a little funny every once in a while. Does but, it really? Uh, yeah, just, you know, you have to kind of keep it in check a little bit. But yeah. but no, I've, I've read a lot about this, seen a lot of movies. It's always... Uh, a really interesting topic and i really enjoy doing the research behind it so should be really really good i agree and humanity always comes out on top in the movie so so far hopefully that plays out in real life maybe we'll see how it goes so uh, we'll start at the beginning and that is a discussion about what is artificial intelligence what is ai Uh, this is a term given to machine intelligence the term is often used to describe machines or computers that mimic sort of these cognitive functions that humans associate with the human mind, you know, like learning and problem solving. So in other words, just a computer that simulates the human mind. Sometimes this is used for conversation. Other times this is used for playing games. Other times it's used for uh, automatically driving a car, as we'll talk about here in just a little bit. But technologies included under the AI umbrella, among others, include Things like understanding human speech, competing at the highest level in strategic games such as chess, and as we mentioned, autonomously operating cars and other machinery and things around the house. They call these smart houses. Do you, do you have any of these devices that you know contribute to this smart house ecosystem no, at your house? I, I don't think we actually do, but we have talked about maybe getting some of the uh, light bulbs. I think think you'd actually introduced us to those uh, a few months ago. So I think the next time uh, that we buy anything like that, we're probably going to start off Start off easy with the uh, with the light bulbs. I think <laughs> that's a good idea. You, you don't want to jump all in, you know. Don't get the uh, automatic uh, AI machine guns. Don't right. don't start no. there. <laughs> no, you know, uh, light bulbs seem to be safe can, for the most part. I think we could do light bulbs. We the, can swing that. Yeah, the worst they're going to do is wait until you're using the bathroom or in the shower and just shut off. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. that's going to be their biggest move to take over humanity. Right. But uh, I think we can overcome that. I, I think you can beat it. Uh, but artificial intelligence was founded as an academic discipline in 1955 and has captured the imagination of scientists, filmmakers, and writers for decades. The field of AI was founded on the assumption that human intelligence can be so precisely described that a machine can be made to simulate it. And that's really the underpinning of the science behind all this, Jason, is that if we can write a set of directions that instruct a machine on exactly what to do, and we could do that in such a precise way that it almost feels human-like, then in some ways we can create intelligence because the computer's just following the instructions that we provide. If this happens, then do this. 
Right. I mean, people have been using uh, TurboTax, things like that. Sure. I mean, that that's yeah. even a much milder version. I know it's like just basically a, pro, you know, a computer program in Excel. Same and, idea, and it's, though. It's set up with algorithms, but it's kind of the same idea, though, right? It is. It just follows if directions. This, then that. Exactly. These conditional statements. The ultimate long-term goal of artificial intelligence is achieving general intelligence, which is the point at which a machine or computer has the capacity to understand or learn any intellectual task that a human can. And I think the overarching goal is to make this sort of autonomous, like we would not have to provide a list of directions, but through experiences, maybe social learning experiences, the machine could just learn how to do something, maybe by watching someone else right. do it. Are we close to that? What do you think? That's a now that's a little weird. I think maybe that's where the line needs to be drawn. <laughs> right. But we'll see. We'll see. So Jason Josh Tenenbaum, a psychologist at MIT in Cambridge, said the following, quote, We're trying to take one of the oldest dreams of AI seriously, that you could build a machine that grows into intelligence the way a human does, that starts like a baby and learns like a child, end quote. That's, um, I mean, it sounds really imaginative, really innovative. Also sounds a little creepy. Yeah, there's something about that that's just a little bit unsettling. It is. (laughs) To me. A machine that learns like a baby. Yeah. (laughs) No thanks. Kind of weird, yeah. Uh, So, Jason, how do computers actually learn? Because that's really what we're talking about. You know, there's there's two facets to this. One where you can have these set of directions provided to the computer. If If this happens, then do this. And then there's this whole other branch of the technology where the computers do actually learn in some way, whether by observation or repeatedly looking at different data and from that gathering some sort of way to approach a problem, etc. But in the past, computers were only able to perform a set of instructions. That That's how it all started. They were provided by the coder and they could only stick to the script. There was nothing autonomous about that necessarily. These were usually conditional statements like if the computer user presses enter, then calculate the sum of the two numbers on the screen. Sure. You know, and and there's no way for the computer to deviate from that. They have to do that thing. This form of AI is often called good old fashioned AI. And apparently that's the scientific term. (laughs) Really? Yeah. All right. Just good old fashioned fashioned. AI. Yeah. Good old boy AI. Yeehaw. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the newer forms of AI is called machine learning. And this is the one that a lot of the leading tech companies have spent billions of dollars attempting to develop and having a lot of success with. The technique goes beyond the traditional list of instructions given to the computer and actually allows the computer to learn for itself through a system of trial and error, similar to how a a human would learn. So one type uh, of method that computers use is called supervised learning. And Jason, that just sounds so space age to me that we're just going to turn the computer on, we're going to supervise it, and we're going to just let it go. We're just going to let it learn. Right. We're going to kind of facilitate the learning, right? We're <laughs> yeah. just going to kind of be available if it has questions. But That's right. other than that, just, you know, hey, computer, just do your thing. Uh, in this type of learning, the programmer sort of categorizes different data, and the computer spends time studying the data and testing itself to see if it can guess which categories the programmer has chosen for each piece of data. So here's a practical example of something the, the computer can do under the supervised learning. So let's assume that the computer programmer has a thousand pictures and uh, labels each as either a picture of a cat, a picture of a boat, or a picture of a chair, right? So we've okay. just got this wide, you know, different boats, different cats, different chairs, but they're labeled. The three you know, categories. Those are the three categories, and they're just pictures. And the computer has no way of knowing which is which at first, right? So basically, the computer looks at each picture 
and it makes a guess as to which type of picture it's looking at. At first, this is almost completely random because it has no previous knowledge. It's just like the previous quote, you know, starts like a baby and learns like a child. Right. So it looks at a picture of a boat and it says cat. <laughs> so once it makes that guess, then it checks against what the programmer provided to see if it was correct or not. And if it was correct, it tweaks some internal settings about how it recognizes things. If it was incorrect, it tweaks the settings as well. And over thousands and sometimes millions of iterations, eventually it starts to guess correctly for reasons that even the people who program it cannot yet understand. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Um, So it it, really is learning. It really is because it goes through, it it sort of rewires itself and and creates these different ways of recognizing the picture. It may say, oh, a cat always has these lines coming out of its face. You know, it doesn't know those are called whiskers. It has no context to even really know what a cat is. (laughs) But over time of, of being told, yes, you're right. No, you're wrong. Yes, you're right. No, you're wrong. It starts to recognize certain patterns within the pictures and it can begin after thousands and millions of iterations of this supervised learning, it will start to guess things correctly 90 to 100% of the time. And the programmers really can't even tell you why. Like if they were to break down the code, they know that certain variables within the programming have been switched on and off and they've been altered. But at the end of the day, the computer has just taught itself how to do something. Yeah, so that, that, make, that makes you wonder, you know, how far are we away from like from that to maybe a, you know much more sophisticated things, oh, and sure. decisions being made, and that's scary know, a little you know, bit. You know, no human, you are wrong. <laughs> you know, this is how we do this, or whatever. Robot twenty twenty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't a far leap from this type of learning uh, until the world started to develop its very first uh, robot conversationalist, right? Okay. Because uh, people have always wanted to talk to robots. Apparently, that's that's a thing, <laughs> you know? In, in your heart of hearts, Jason, have you ever wanted to, to look at the toaster and just have a meaningful conversation about life? I probably do that about three times a week. <laughs> <laughs> just I'm just lucky that no one actually sees or hears me do that. That's right. <laughs> so the world's very first chatbot was named Eliza. It was an early natural language processing computer program uh, created and in development from about 1964 to 1966. So there were about two years there where it was being worked on. It was developed at the MIT Artificial Intelligence Laboratory by Joseph Weizenbaum. And Jason, the program was named Eliza after the character Eliza Doolittle from George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion. You ever heard of Pygmalion? Oh, yeah. Pygmalion? yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So according to Weizenbaum, Eliza's ability to be incrementally improved, this is kind of what we were talking about with the learning algorithms this this kind of predated some of that but eliza would sort of generally get better little by little right you know for for different reasons uh but because of the program's ability to to do that uh it made it similar to eliza doolittle the character from the play since uh, eliza was taught to speak with an upper class accent in the play so she incrementally changed you know Hmm. how she spoke and how she had conversation and um one of the reasons the program was created was to demonstrate the superficiality of human conversation. So in other words, this program didn't really even understand the context of what it was talking about, but it could respond to just about anything you said to it. So if you said hello, it may not know necessarily contextually that you're giving it a greeting, like it doesn't have any recollection of that, but it knows that hello is generally followed by, oh, hi, or hello, how are you? You know, it just, right. it has those conventions, uh, internally and it just knows that so the user would type a message to eliza and based on the semantics of the sentence the program followed an algorithm that provided a specific type 
of response. So just like if we were to say, how are you doing today? They know the convention or the program knows the convention is to say, oh, I'm doing great. How are you? It doesn't really know that you've asked it how it is, but it knows what the conventions of the, language is. It just knows that that's an, an appropriate response for right. what it sees. That's correct. Yep. So in some instances, the program would just rearrange the text given uh, so, it, so it had the appearance of a correct response. So here's an example. Uh, if you type the phrase, I'm not feeling well today, the program might read the text, change the semantics around a bit, and then ask, why are you not feeling well today? So you could have said anything there. You could have been saying, hey, I feel really excited today. And because you started with the personal pronoun I and followed it immediately with a verb, that computer program could just sort of rearrange the semantics of that sentence and form a question. Why are you really excited today? Or oh, why God, are you, you feeling really yeah. happy? And it again, it didn't really know what it was asking, but it was just using semantical tricks. And I think in some ways, this does sort of demonstrate that conversation can be superficial. Right. Sometimes. Yeah. Have you ever passed somebody in a hall, the hallway and just said, hey, how are you today? And then just kind of kept walking. Yeah. Like you actually <laughs> say it, but you're not really uh, intending for a response. That's right. right. <laughs> and, yeah. and in the odd circumstances where it happens, you're kind of thrown off a little bit. Yeah. You're like, well, I'm not doing too well. This happened. <laughs> and then you kind of stop and turn around. And, and then all of a sudden they have sudden, you for like 15 minutes. All of a sudden right? you're in a conversation. <laughs> yeah. That's right. It's like, no, no, no. Yeah, that wasn't an actual, hey, how are you doing? It's like, 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 wait, like you a, misunderstood me. When I said, how are you? I just meant, hi, don't speak to me. <laughs> yeah. That was uh, more like like a sup, you know, yeah, as, sup. Yeah, sup. What's, what's up? Uh, so in this example, uh, why are you not feeling well today? When Eliza responds, the computer program really has no way of understanding what's actually being said. It's just <laughs> inverting the sentence given to it, forming a response. It doesn't even actually know or care that you are not feeling well. <laughs> and that's that's unfortunate and sad, but it's well, true. In, well, in some ways, uh, that <laughs> may be like a human. That's right. <laughs> Certain humans. <laughs> that's right. So... Jason, this program was so convincing that some users became emotionally attached to Eliza. They, they started to really connect with this machine and this robot and, and with these responses. Uh, yeah, I think I've seen that one play. I think the, those are referred to as, is it geeks maybe or nerds? <laughs> or <whatever? laughs> maybe. Uh, but Weizenbaum was surprised that this happened, that the, the creator thought, I had no idea that people were going to become emotionally attached to a response robot. Uh, he went on to write, quote, I had not realized that extremely short exposures to a relatively simple computer program could induce powerful delusional thinking in quite normal people, end quote. And that's that seems so ridiculous, but that's kind of the exact conversation that I had with my toaster the other day. <laughs> so, so maybe I could see it. Toaster, I love you. <laughs> don't, don't tell anyone. So, Jason, Eliza was one of the very first programs capable of attempting something called the Turing test. So, can you tell us a little bit about the Turing test and what that was? And then maybe we can figure out why Eliza was one of the first programs that was able to, to take sure. this test. Yeah. Uh, you know, today we think of AI very differently than people 70 years ago. Uh, nevertheless, one of the most significant events in AI development did occur 70 years ago, way back in 1950, and that was the Turing test. The Turing test was named after Alan Turing, who was a British mathematician and computer scientist who played a major role in helping the Allies win World War II. Uh, in many respects, Turing is considered the father of theoretical computer science and artificial intelligence. So Turing develops a test after World War II to see if a machine can exhibit behavior equivalent to or, or indistinguishable from that of a human, which is kind of what you're talking exactly about. Exactly right what we're talking about, yeah. So basically the test consists of three players. 
One is a computer uh, and one is a human. The job of both the computer and the human is to simply give answers to questions. The answers they give are printed on paper, so it's not like a an an, uh, an auditory response, right? So right. Every, everything is in, is in print. So you can't recognize the computer saying the answer is to the answer <laughs> is yeah. It doesn't talk like you know like C three PO or right. anything like it's that. It's just right? printed out on paper, right? Okay. And then finally, the third player uh, reads the answers and tries to determine which player is human and which is the computer. If the human evaluating the answers is unable to determine which answers come from the human and which come from the computer, 50% of the time, the computer is said to have artificial intelligence. So basically, a human really, it's a coin flip on whether or not they could determine the answers coming from a computer as opposed to that maybe of their brother. Oh wow, that's yep. that's incredible. That's that's really really interesting. And uh, you know, anytime you're talking about uh, artificial intelligence and, and computer development and really just kind of interesting things in general, Alan Turing is probably at the uh, foundation level of that. He is, and right. he, he was in a movie played by Benedict uh, Cumberbatch. Cumberbatch. Yeah. I can't remember the name yeah, of it. It wasn't. It wasn't Michael Keaton. I know you're going to say Michael Keaton. I know <laughs> should have been, but we'll leave yeah. that where it is. Yeah, it uh, was Benedict Cumberbatch. I think it was called the Imitation Game. Oh, that's exactly what it was. I think that's the name of it. Yeah. I haven't actually seen it fantastic but, but uh, I, i'm aware of it so yeah it's really good yeah you, you should check that out yeah. so yeah the turing test pretty fascinating and eliza was one of the first programs capable of attempting that and apparently some folks genuinely couldn't tell the difference between eliza's responses versus an actual human and therefore i guess she's determined to have artificial intelligence i guess so pretty cool yeah so jason artificial intelligence uh is not only good for having conversations or an emotional crutch you know, just kind of for like finding a best friend. <laughs> you built my toaster. In a machine. <laughs> Every, you keep talking, and the more I'm beginning to reevaluate my relationship with this toaster. <laughs> right. So, you know, the, these AIs also uh, apparently are really good at playing strategic games. And in some instances, they're even better than humans, <laughs> really skilled humans. Okay. So, one famous example is a computer program called. Deep Blue. It was developed by IBM, and it was a chess-playing computer, and it is known for being the first computer chess-playing system to win both a chess game and a chess match against a reigning world champion chess player under regular time controls. And today, it, it seems fairly common that something like a, you know, a chess AI would exist. I've played a few computer games sure. over the oh, years yeah. where, where you can play against these sort right. of AI. But uh, around this time, uh, especially when development began in 1985 for Deep Blue, this was a novel concept because it was theorized that having these, uh, these complex tasks were... It, it was difficult for a computer to think through logically and, and determine, you know, the best play against a human player because a human has all that context information. Right. You know, whereas a computer typically is just acting from a, a list of instructions, at least during this time. But when Deep Blue started development, uh, Joel Benjamin, uh, a grandmaster chess player, was part of the development team. And, and he said to sort of be the heart and soul of the okay. program because he used all of his experience, all the context he understood about the program. And he helped IBM really develop uh, Deep Blue into what it was to become. And Deep Blue won its first game against world champion Gary Kasparov in game one of a six-game match on February 10th, 1996. So, man, the heat was on. 
if, if you had a six-match series to play against a computer and the whole world is watching and you are the grandmaster chess champion and, and you, you lose the first game. And you lose game one, I think everyone's attention is, All of a is, sudden, on, is on you now, right? It is. Uh, however, Kasparov won three of, of the following games. So he, he said, oh, I better you know saddle up right. and, and get ready to play this game. Uh, and he drew two of the following five games, defeating Deep Blue by a score of four to two. So pretty close. Pretty close. Uh, Kasparov did come out with the overall victory. He was defeated two times. Yeah, this this really set the stage for what AI could do. Now, this wasn't the end of the story. Deep Blue received heavy upgrades by <laughs> IBM uh, and played Kasparov again in May 1997, which was uh, a little over a year later. Uh, in the rematch, Deep Blue defeated Kasparov and became the first computer system to defeat the reigning world champion in a match under standard chess tournament time controls. And, of course, Kasparov uh, accused IBM of cheating. <laughs> well, yeah, I would. How dare this computer right. uh, defeat me? Uh, he said that he sometimes saw deep intelligence and creativity in the machine's moves, where hmm. apparently there, there were none outside of the, the scripting that was provided to the program. He suggested that human players were intervening with the match while it was still being played. Of course, IBM denied that they were cheating and actually later uh, published Deep Blue's log files (laughs) of the match on the internet just to show everybody, no, we we didn't do anything. You have like Bobby Fischer sitting in the back like with a, just like with a microwave on his head, acting like he's a computer, you know, (laughs) just moving around stuff. Just kind of plugged in, yeah. (laughs) Do this, Deep Blue. (laughs) So how did Deep Blue actually work? Well, it used a brute force approach, all right, so whereby it would use all of its processing power, of which it had quite a large-scale processor for the time, uh, and it would calculate the best possible combination of moves from its current playing position. Deep Blue could evaluate 200 million positions per second. Golly. I'm sorry, Bobby Fisher. I mean, a, yeah. probably you're not winning this one. Probably not. This allowed the computer to think and plan anywhere from eight to twenty or more moves ahead, and that's to say, it would say, okay, if I move my pawn to this square, theoretically, the a good skilled player will automatically make this move and then i'll make this move and then they'll make this move and then i'll make this move and it could go 20 moves deep so the game is like almost over before it begins yeah (laughs) i mean kind of it's like 20 moves out it can just sort of look at the opponent and just say checkmate (laughs) (laughs) back away from the table (laughs) so the program would evaluate such things as how important is a safe king position compared to a space advantage in the center of the board and it would just make all of these calculations and determinations and uh, Jason by June 1997 Deep Blue was the 259th most powerful supercomputer in the world and although that's a huge statistic it also makes me wonder so there's 258 other supercomputers right. in the world that are doing what exactly? <laughs> I hope uh, I hope the United States government have uh, has the rest of those. <laughs> I <would> hope so. <laughs> Especially like maybe like the top ten or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Nowadays, some of these Jason might actually be located in inside cars. Right. So I, I know there's been a lot in the news lately about some of these autonomous driving cars. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I've seen some on the road, the way some people drive. I think, <laughs> man, that's got to be a computer because what are they thinking? But what can you tell us about these auto driving cars? Yeah. So another interesting aspect of uh, artificial intelligence can be found in autonomous driving vehicles. And of course, these are vehicles that are capable of sensing its environment and moving safely with little or no human input. Experiments first began with self-driving cars in the 1920s with trials that started actually much later, uh, but as early as 1950. 
Little by little over the years, cars have become smarter, that's for sure. Uh, from navigation systems, cameras, sensors, anti-lock brakes, uh, cars are becoming more and more autonomous. However, there is an event that measures just how autonomous cars can be, and that event is called the DARPA Grand Challenge. So are you familiar with this? I don't think I've heard of that one, no. So DARPA stands for Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. All right. And is a part, just trust me on that, <laughs> and, and, is, and is a part of the United States Department of Defense. And Congress actually authorized DARPA to give out cash rewards to further private high-level research. So basically, let's kind of enlist the private sector and get the smartest people in the United States and see what they can do. Sure. So DARPA has hosted several events. Uh, the first was in March of 2004 in the Mojave Desert. The route was 150 miles long, and they had dozens and dozens of uh, people that actually applied, and you know they were accepted, and they got into this race, and they basically were, you know, uh, not really like you know uh, manipulating like flying a drone, but they were, you know, uh, I guess kind of looking at it, kind of seeing where it's at, but not re- controlling it. You know, all right. of that's kind of being done just autonomously, sort of observational, just sort of yeah, they can kind of have a bird's eye view, but really not in control of that. And uh, so, again, they had a 150-mile route, but none of the robots finished the route. A car named Sandstorm, (laughs) created by folks at Carnegie Mellon University, did the best by traveling uh, almost seven and a half miles before Mm. getting hung on a big rock. They kind of jackknifed on a rock, and that was it. So there were actually no winners uh, in the first race. Okay. During the 2005 race, five vehicles completed the course, uh, and actually a longer course. Oh, got all the way through it? All the way through. So the first course was 150 uh, miles. The second was over 200. You had five vehicles actually complete the second one just, just within the very next year. Wow. With first place going to Stanley, a vehicle created by the Stanford Racing Team of Stanford University. I love the name. <laughs> yeah, come here, sounds so kind. Come here, Stanley. Yeah. <laughs> Stanley's not going to run over any cats or dogs no, no. or anything in the road. No. But now it was one thing to kind of be out in the middle of the desert and climbing hills and sort of mountainous terrain and, and that type of thing. But in 2007, DARPA complicated things with the Urban Challenge. That made vehicles obey all traffic laws at red lights. The vehicles also had to merge lanes. Oh, wow. And Carnegie Mellon uh, brought home first place with a vehicle named Boss. Okay. And that one. So good for boss. Again, uh, not nearly as long as a obstacle course, so to speak, or whatever, but but a lot of things in that. You know, so they like had four way stops. Do they have to maybe signal or, or whatever? Yeah. 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 Merge and just all those different things. Kind of okay. like real driving, you yeah. know, in towns and cities and on, on the interstate and stuff. And so that's that was the 2007 uh, challenge called the Urban Challenge. Uh, and I actually have a couple of different experiences uh, with this. The first probably is with our good friend Chad Lawson. Oh, yeah. And so probably a year and a half ago, two years ago, maybe, uh, Chad, and I forgot the name of the car that he bought. I want to say it was a Leaf. Is that right? I can't remember. I can't remember. I can't remember. But anyway, he he came in the office and he said, hey, he said, you got to try this car out. Come out here. So I I go out. So I'm I'm driving the car, right? And so we're approaching uh, the, uh, the intersection there by the university. And I'm going like probably 15, 18 miles an hour or something like that. And there's a red light. 
and there's a car clearly stopped in front of me sitting oh, yeah. there. And so the, as we're getting closer, then Chad just says, don't hit the brakes. Oh, gosh. And so, <laughs> so we're going, I'm, again, I'm going about probably 15, You're 18 driving. miles an hour. Chad's I'm driving. In passenger seat. Chad's in the passenger yeah. seat, and he's going, don't hit the brakes. He said, now watch this. And this was the moment he had waited for, right? So, you know, it was, it was an awesome car, but he wanted to show me what it would do in this particular situation, right? And then right as you collided with the rear end, you so, realized you weren't actually in the car he thought that day. He's no. like, oh, no. Oh, man, I, I drove a different car. I forgot to turn on the AI. <laughs> no, he said, uh, I just remember him saying, don't hit the brakes. And yeah. I said, are you sure? Because <laughs> I'm driving your new car. And he said, uh, no, don't hit the brakes. And so we're getting closer. And, I st- and my leg kind of starts to raise up. you know. And he said, don't do it. And I said, I, I can't do it, Chad. I got to hit the brakes. And and right before my foot hits the brakes, the car just instantly like goes from like 15 to like 2. I mean, like just instantly. And then just glides to a stop. And I'm probably six feet from the car. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, and then my other experience, uh, and again, this this is more of a safety feature, but but it is something that a lot of cars are having is sort of the the, the lights that are flashing like by your uh, the side mirrors and, mm-hmm. and some sounds. Like if, if you're getting ready to switch lanes and it senses an, an object there, it senses another car. Oh, yeah, just sort of object detection. It yeah. knows you're too close to the guardrail or yeah. whatever. Yeah. So the, uh, in, in my wife's car, she has a Nissan Pathfinder, and in her car, there's a little light uh, even in day and even in daytime, you can see it that will come on on the uh, side mirror and it'll just pop up and then there's this ringing and that it'll, so instantly it will say, hey, you can't get over. And so we, we drive that car a lot on the interstate and uh, and I didn't really realize how accustomed to that feature I had I was becoming. You were dependent on it. Uh, yeah. And yeah. so when we drove to uh, Fort Walton a couple, you know, I guess a week and a half ago, whatever, for vacation, we, we drove a rental car down and that car did not do that. Uh-oh. And so it was interesting as we were drove, you know, even my wife was saying like, I'm, I'm kind of missing that. You know, I have to kind of look now that I didn't really have to even think about it. It would just automatically tell me. And so yeah. even as something as simple as just sort of, you know, we're still in control driving a car, but even that little subtle, subtle feature begins to affect people, uh, affect people's lives. Having that assistive technology, you yep. start to rely on it. Yep. Yeah, I could definitely see that, especially if we get to a point someday where the cars are just literally driving themselves. Right. There, there's no steering wheel. You know, we're, we're seated inside almost like you would with a restaurant, maybe even with your back facing the, the front yeah. windshield. Yeah, you just you just type in home or yeah, you know, wherever Walmart or wherever, and push go, and then just read a book. That's awesome. Yep, yep. So, Jason, before we get into the next topic here, you want to take a quick break and come right back. Sounds great. Hey, everyone. We're happy to announce that the podcast now has a merchandise store. Shannon, everyone loves hoodies and everyone loves coffee. Yeah, and you can pick up a nice slapdash hoodie or a slapdash mug and drink your next cup of joe right out of a slapdash cup. (laughs) We also have t-shirts and stickers. Yeah, we do. So come on by and log on to www.slapdashpod.com forward slash store. That's www.slapdashpod.com forward slash store. We are back and we are talking about artificial intelligence. And Jason, AI is not just a big part of science. It is also a big part of pop culture. Have you seen AI pop up in any movies or books here in the last uh, 10 years? Oh, yeah. Yeah, several times. One of uh, my favorite newer type movies uh, is a 2014 release called Ex Machina. Have you heard of this one? I have heard of it, but I have not watched it. It's uh, it's really good. It's a science fiction movie, psychological thriller. You put those two things together as a genre and 
I'm in. I love it. It's, it's just perfect. Uh, it's a film that follows a programmer who is invited by a CEO to administer the Turing test, which we talked about here just a few moments ago, uh, to an intelligent humanoid robot. Uh, the film was made on a budget of about $15 million and grossed $36 million, which is still a profit, but compared to some of the statistics we talked about on other episodes, that's right. a very modest sure. profit, you know, uh, $21 million. Yeah. <laughs> just, just modest. That's nothing. No big deal. The film was recognized as one of the 10 best independent films of 2014 by the National Board of Review. And the director, uh, Alex Garland, had an interesting quote that I wanted to share. I think it fits perfectly into this context uh, of what we're getting ready to move into. So we talked a lot about the science of AI, and we're getting ready to talk a little bit about sort of maybe even the threat Sure. Of AI here in a bit. But the director of this film, of Ex Machina, said the events described and presented in the film, including the future that's portrayed, is 10 minutes from now. Wow. So I, I think the point of that is to say we're on the verge of all these crazy science fiction outcomes that right. we've seen in movies it's and here. books. The future is now. And one of the, the films where this was portrayed importantly in, in our lifetime or one that received some of the most uh, critical acclaim was The Matrix. Do you remember oh, watching yeah. The Matrix? Sure. Yeah. Uh, it's a, obviously a 1999 science fiction, also an action film. It depicts a dystopian future in which humanity is unknowingly trapped inside a simulated reality. Uh, this reality was created by intelligent machines to distract humans while using their bodies as an energy source. And it's really scary. Yeah, that's that movie and that, that whole concept just sort of plays with your mind a little bit. It, it does. It kind of makes you wonder. Makes you wonder about the threat right. of AI. Uh, the film, The Matrix, was made on a budget of $63 million and grossed $465.3 million. So, you know, just a small little $400 million profit. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. It received Academy Awards for film editing, sound effects editing, visual effects, and, uh, you know, you name it. The Matrix cleaned up. It took took it home that year. I think it was even up against Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, which is an oh, established so, yeah. franchise and a, and a big, big deal. And as far as awards go, yeah, it, it yeah. won in just about every category. Um, here, here's a fun fact for you. You recall there's uh, one AI in that movie named Agent Smith. Oh, yeah. He's sort of sure. the, the yeah. main central villain to the film. Well, Jason, he drives an Audi. <laughs> okay. Film. And the license plate on the Audi reads IS5416. Okay. So people who have watched this movie critically and have seen that license plate several times, I must admit, prior to doing this research, I never noticed that. Right. Any license yeah, I, plate. I, I never noticed that. But IS5416 is a biblical reference to Isaiah 5416, which states, Behold, I've created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the waster to destroy. So that's kind of scary. Here, let's wow. unpack that. So created the smith, and you know, smith is a shorthand for blacksmith, but right. also parallel to Agent Smith. Sure. And uh, it, it's kind of interesting here. In this context, at least, it seems as if humanity has created its own destructor. Right. You know, they, they have obviously created the, created the artificial intelligence in the movie. The AI becomes self-aware. They rise up, and then they start to use humans in some of the same ways that humans have used them. They, they use them as batteries to power their world. And, and, in fact, in one part of the movie, one of the uh, characters calls another character Copper Top. And, <laughs> and you might remember yeah. Duracell. 
yeah oh yeah brand of battery yeah. you know called the the copper top battery right. so kind Had of the, a, the little the little bunny right the bounce yeah is that, right? is that the yeah. energizer bunny that's energizer but yeah yeah but I, I, I know what you're talking about though but yeah, yeah just having i guess duracell was like the black battery with the little it has a little copper, copper yeah. end on yeah. it yeah so so the matrix a really interesting film and has a lot of interesting parallels to this thread of ai i've got one more and then let's dive a little bit deeper into to that uh sure AI fear that some of us have. So the Terminator is one mm-hmm. of the biggest movies when it comes to sort of uh, perpetuating this fear that AI one day is going to rise up and, and take over. Uh, the Terminator is a 1984 American science fiction film directed by James Cameron. We've discussed it at length on other episodes. You know, check out our top uh, our top 20 80s movies if you want more information on the Terminator. We've got some cool facts in there. But uh, in the film, there's a cyborg assassin that has an artificial intelligence, and he travels back in time to assassinate the mother of the future resistance leader, John Connor. The film was made on a budget of $6.4 million and grossed $78.3 million. Uh, it was re- uh, The film received three Saturn Awards for Best Science Fiction Film, Best Makeup, and Best Writing. And it's also sort of terrified me as a kid i mean that was just uh just seeing the terminator and, and all of his like he, he had this chrome exoskeleton and this computer brain and in a lot of ways it was similar to the matrix in that humanity had sort of created its own destructor right in a way so so jason a lot of people are afraid that this might actually be a risk to humanity so what can you tell us about this perceived risk that AI gives us down the road? Well, uh, existential risk from artificial general intelligence simply means that computers or artificial intelligence might simply wipe out the human race. That, oh, know, that's all? That's that's all it means. What's right? the big deal? Other than that, we're okay. Yeah. The movies have been filled with this idea, like you just you just mentioned there, the Terminator franchise is, is based on this. One of the recent uh, Avengers movies, I think is the, the Age of Ultron. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I forgot yeah, about that one. Uh, it also has that theme in it. Uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey has the uh, the scene toward the end of the movie where the computer right, Hal sort of does its own thing kind of kind of yeah, goes rogue decides to do its, right. its own thing and yeah. so you know th- this idea that computers could could rise up and maybe overthrow humans uh, it's, it's been out there for quite some time and, and in fact I have a couple of interesting quotes uh, the first is from novelist Samuel Butler who wrote an essay in 1863 called Darwin among machines. So Butler says, the upshot is simply a question of time, but that the time will come when the machines will hold the real supremacy over the world and its inhabitants is what no person of a truly philosophic mind can for a moment question. Oh, wow. Pretty powerful. Powerful. Scary. Right. Foreboding. <laughs> and then also in 1951, Alan Turing also made a comment that we've talked about here. Uh, Turing says, let us now assume for the sake of argument that intelligent machines are a genuine possibility and look at the consequences of constructing them. There would be no question of the machines dying and they would be able to converse with each other to sharpen their wits. At some stage, therefore, we should have to expect the machines to take control. So just some of the scientists who are at the forefront of the technology say, all right, heads up, everyone. This, this is coming. It's, it's not even something that we have to think maybe it will happen. It's it's here. It's it's going to happen, but right? I mean, it, maybe it's 10 minutes from now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it's 10, 10 years or possibly 10 minutes, but this is inevitable. If, if we create these machines and we give them these abilities, that they're going to use these abilities like a human. They're going to learn from it, and all of a sudden, maybe they uh, get greedy. 
Yeah. Maybe they start feeling like they're not being treated right. And when that's they start right. having feelings, that's when things go south. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the other themes for me, you know, when I think about uh, the risk and artificial intelligence and those type of things, to me is like nuclear war, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a scary thing. That, that's kind of a scary thing. And sometimes we see it as maybe it's just a computer malfunction and someone, you know, the key switch won't turn and then a, a rocket gets fired, right? Or sure. it's like, a, like an ICBM. Oh, well, type the world's thing. over. No big deal. Right. Yeah. But I have seen some movies where, you know, these these machines become so advanced and the computer becomes uh, so advanced that maybe that they make the decisions on when to fire or, or when not to. Oh, yeah. And so, the, you know, the whole concept of nuclear war occurring without really human input or, or human control, like there is no override, there is no kill switch, you know, because Stanley made it so, you know, <laughs> you can, you know, you know, you cannot kill me. <laughs> I won this race. What is life? <laughs> yeah. So those are the kinds of things that we're talking about when we, we really talk about the risk of artificial general intelligence in terms of its its uh, ability to kind of do the human race in potentially. Man. And they talk about computers starting as a baby and then sort of learning as a child. Right. You don't have to teach a child to reach over and pull another child's brains out. I mean, by the hair. No, because that just happens naturally. It's natural. <laughs> right. And, and it, they get jealous. They do. And they get mad. And, and I yep. want that thing that person's holding. And right. computers could be physically more powerful. They might have access to more weaponized technologies like you're talking about with the, the nuclear weapons. So, yeah, there there is a risk there. And, and some of the leading scientists and technology experts of even our day, including Bill Gates and Elon Musk, right. have spoken on the topic of artificial intelligence. They've done TED Talks. And they just want humanity to sort of be globally aware that as we right. progress, we also might need to put some safeguards into place. Oh, absolutely, yep. And you know, a lot of a lot of scientists, you know, think that basically that it will never come to that because computers really don't have uh, an understanding or a desire for self-preservation. Right. But what happens if they do? Yeah. And that's I think what we're talking about here. What happens if they develop that idea of well, no, this this is a better route, or this is what I want to do, or, sure. or whatever. So that's that opens up opens up a whole other can of worms there. Yeah. And the the main long term goal of AI has been stated as established general intelligence yeah it's fine to teach them to recognize cats and boats and whatever <laughs> in pictures but at the end of the day what that is attempting to accomplish is just a small puzzle piece of the larger picture which is to have um, machines that are very human-like and can learn right. just like humans and that might be a threat someday who knows Potentially. but for now the toaster and i are friends <laughs> oh yeah my toaster makes the best uh, pop tarts and like the toaster strudels oh yeah it's the best <laughs> my toaster's getting jealous and <laughs> thus the machine uprising begins <laughs> so uh jason good episode I, I thought this was fun a lot of cool research anything else you want to add on ai before we close it out uh no i think that's it but I, I really did like this episode again it sort of uh brings home all of these uh theories and things that we see a lot and themes and movies and books uh, but they're there for a reason yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, it's it's one thing if you see or read about it like once and you're like, okay. But when you keep seeing these things over and over and these same ideas and concepts over in different books, different decades, there's, some, there's a reason why that keeps occurring. Yeah, it is. So we'll yeah. see. 
Yeah, we sure will. So thanks to all of our listeners who are joining us each week. We appreciate you downloading the podcast. And if you want to support us, please consider sharing the podcast with someone else. That's really one of the best ways that you can help us get the word out about the uh, content of the podcast. And uh, please join us on Mondays and Thursdays. We release new episodes in history, art, science, and everything else. You can also follow us on social media uh, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the handle at SlapdashPod. And we'll catch you in the next episode. Take care, everybody.